Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, Trump and Russia. CJR recently published a four-part series examining step-by-step how the media covered Trump and his Russia ties and the mistakes that a lot of news outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post made in their coverage. It's a very long, very detailed, almost encyclopedic look at this whole chapter of our national debate and has generated a ton of attention, positive and frankly, a lot of negative. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Jeff Gerth, who wrote these stories. Jeff's a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist who worked for The New York Times for nearly 30 years before joining ProPublica, where he covered Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election. Again, Jeff's story has struck people almost um, in sort of predictable ways. Trump supporters saw our stories and said, aha, this is vindication of what we've been saying about Trump and the media, and it's proven by the Columbia Journalism Review, and they're all um, writing about it and tweeting about it. Trump himself posted about it on his sort of fledgling social network, Truth Social. The other side of the aisle, including a lot of journalists, have hated the story and have said it aired by giving Trump a voice to say things that were nonsense because Jeff interviewed him, and Jeff and I will talk about his interviews with Trump. So I'm really happy to talk to Jeff about the story, about the reaction, about his path to this story and a long career in journalism. He's joining us today from Washington, D.C., where he lives. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing fine, Kyle. This has been sort of an insane week, right? Uh, it has. I just discovered that an Armenian newspaper picked up the story. Uh-huh. We're, <laughs> you're big in Armenia. Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, it's sort of surreal to be having this sort of formal conversation because we've talked 2,000 times in the last several months. But let's go back and talk about what the genesis of this piece was like what was it what was the question you were trying to answer why did you think that was important just just talk me through your thought process and how this sort of came to be yeah well it actually traces back to a lunch we had in new york around may of 2019 i was in new york for the birth of my grandson and you and i had lunch and the the Mueller report had been recently released We had a discussion about it and the fact that the the sort of overarching conspiracy that some people thought he might find or prove hadn't uh, materialized. And we had a discussion about the media. And I think you used the word anatomy. Maybe I should do an anatomy. And, And I said something to the effect, well, if you want me to do an autopsy, I'd be interested in that. And then I perhaps mistakenly said, this uh, lawyer, John Durham, had just been appointed to go back and look into the origins of the whole uh, FBI investigation. And I said, well, if you want me to do an autopsy, let's wait for the coroner's report and maybe Durham will shed more light. And now, almost four years later, he, he still hasn't produced a report. Finally, after a year or two of sort of monitoring the subject but not really doing any reporting, I decided in 2021 to start doing some reporting and see if I could get interviews with journalists, with witnesses, with 
people who were players either directly or indirectly in in the whole saga so that that's kind of the genesis of of the idea to to do a story and to try and go back and look sort of as as you described doing an anatomy of what had happened and you had done you did a piece a series of pieces for CJR i think in 2017 about the times and the times is editorial advertising sort of wall and and the issues there but how, how much media reporting had you done before all this uh none <laughs> so what did you find what did you find about how i mean cuz you say in the piece that you wrote this last week that you reached out to something like 60 journalists involved in somehow in the Trump Russia story and of those 60 only a dozen people agreed to speak on the record how how does that rate of willingness to engage compare to other industries you've written about other stories you've done well that that that's an interesting question and and one that I'm still sort of grappling with myself but and I, I think I probably wound up getting more than a dozen on the record because by the end a few more people like Bob Woodward spoke to me on the record but generally speaking in my 50 years of reporting most of them at the New York Times, I dealt with a lot of high-profile people, institutions, most major American corporations, presidents, senators, agencies, and had to deal with trying to report about them and get them to cooperate. Like anything else in life, it's, it's a mixed tableau. Some people were willing to talk, some people weren't over the years. With regards to journalists, I found it kind of broke down around the journalists who felt like their stories stood up were much more inclined to talk to me than the journalists whose stories had been criticized or hadn't wound up looking so good in retrospect. Now, you know, I don't want to generalize and say exclusively yes or no, but for the most part, that's kind of of how it broke down. I have a friend, Lowell Bergman, who was a longtime CBS producer and great journalist. And we actually did a collaboration in the New York Times once. And Lowell likes to say that journalists don't have thin skin. They don't have any skin. <laughs> and I, I started to accept his characterization. Mm-hmm. But not again, not all journalists, but, but many of them are loath to discuss or engage with, with what they do. And, and I find it perplexing. Well, first, before we get into the get back into the piece, you mentioned your time at the Times. Talk to me about the arc of your career. Like, when did you? When did you? How you were at the Times for what? Thirty years? Yeah, I, I started out as a freelance reporter. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in life. I thought I might want to go to law school. I had actually then did some work for a couple of law firms as a private investigator, and I realized I had a good knack for finding information so I, and I didn't want to be a lawyer so I was a freelance reporter and then uh, in 1976 uh, Seymour Hirsch got an assignment to look into organized crime and that led him to a, a major figure who was kind of the fixer between the underworld and the upper world and he heard about me because I had done some work on that so he came out to see me and I wound up doing a four-part series with him 
1976. And then we did a, a long series on Gulf and Western for the New York Times in 77. And that, that's when I became a, a full-time employee for the Times. And so, and I spent uh, my first several years in New York, and then I moved to Washington and stayed there till the end of 2005 when I retired from the Times. And I, I co-authored a book with uh, Don Van Atta, a biography of Hillary Clinton, and then joined ProPublica at its inception in 2008. I was the first editorial employee hired by Paul Steiger. One of the, um, the one of the blowbacks that has come this week in in response to the CJR stories is your work on Whitewater, which people have said so they sort of tried to make a case that because you're critical of 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 Hillary Clinton and the CJR piece and sort of her role in kind of shifting not really critical of her so much as critical as the media but anyway she she tried to shift the attention away from her Russia problems to Trump's. How do you view that criticism of Whitewater and this? And have you have you responded to it, or have you thought about it? Well, um, it's a it's an old canard. Uh, in my work at the Times, I wrote critical pieces of Republican politicians, Democratic politicians, Republican presidents, Democratic presidents. I did investigative pieces on the Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich and the Speaker of the House Jim Wright. Um, Yes, I did write the first Whitewater article, which in turn led to the appointment of what became, you know, the independent council. But um, when when people don't like the message, they sometimes try and shoot the messenger. And if there are things that were wrong in the piece, uh, I'm, you know, ready, willing and able to correct them if people don't like the work I've done before, there's nothing I can really say to that other than the work speaks for itself. And my record at the Times was, I think I, I won somewhere between 10 and 15 publisher awards. My correction rate at the Times was about as low as you can get. I think you can count on one hand the number of corrections I had in 30 years. Um, I wrote a book on the Clintons. It, it had almost 2,000 footnotes in it, and there wasn't one request for a correction. Do they contain some critical information? Yes, but it's it's accurate, it's truthful, and it's fair. And with regards to the, the piece at hand, all of the information in the piece related to the Clintons, most of it comes from public sources or a book, Jill Abramson's books quoted once in the in the piece, but the rest of it comes from them. One of the things that I find interesting about this whole experience with the, the piece and the reaction to the piece, it's come down fairly cleanly on sort of partisan lines, I think. It's fairly predictable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the way I would, I, I thought about this some, and, you know, look, with regards to the whole Russia thing, they're, they're like two polar opposites here. On the one hand, there's sort of the, the Trump world of it was a hoax. And on the other end are the people who think he was a Russian agent. And then there are gradations from each of those polls. So the, the people who thought it was a hoax at the far end, there are people who say, well, there were some, you know, suspicious things, this and that, but he wasn't a Russian agent. And then the people at the other end 
sort of say, well, maybe he wasn't a witting Russian agent. Maybe he was unwitting or he certainly did things that they liked. And so um, and in terms of the reaction to the piece, it's fairly predictable in the sense that the people who were long critical of the investigation and the media's coverage of it tend to like the piece and the people like Mother Jones that just wrote a piece, uh, you know, we're not happy with the piece because they still think there's something there. And, you know, I don't take a position in the piece one way or another. I just lay out what happened, which is what we kind of discussed when we talked about this project that was just going to be a factual reconstruction of what transpired what was printed in the media or broadcast in the media, and then what the eventual documentation and reports and books and everything that came subsequently showed to be true or not true. And some things held up well and some things didn't. And that was just the nature of the assignment. And that's what I tried to accomplish in the way I, I wrote it. Um, one of the things that I've always that I've always noticed about you and your approach to this is that you really don't approach this stuff through a sort of partisan lens. And you don't approach sources through a partisan lens. This was very clear when when you started talking to me about going to talk to Trump about this. Um, there is some debate in journalism where people are saying, like, they don't even think Trump should be interviewed. I've heard this. People say, you know, he has no credibility. Why would you even talk to him? Right. You're not going to get anything. I'm familiar with that. <laughs> Your view was... I'm going to go. I'm going to make the request. I'm going to go hear what he has to say. I'm going to report what he said. Talk to me about your conversations with him, um, how you prepared for it, how what what you sort of took away from that. Yeah, well, you're right. There are people who think Trump's uh, such a, a fabulous or, uh, you know, challenged by the truth that, that what's the point of going to talk to him? Uh, obviously, I'm not in that camp. And I believe in talking to anybody who's central or even secondary to the story I'm reporting. And of course, he was a central character in the story. Uh, I, I had no inroads to his world. I didn't know anybody who worked in the White House with him. I had never encountered him in my years at the Times, but I managed through just circumstance and various ways to, to get an interview with him. And before I went, I talked to several reporters who had interviewed him to try and get a sense of what it's like. Obviously, I've seen interviews. I've seen transcripts of interviews. And I basically came away with, with two descriptions. One is he'll either be engaged and be a good interview or he'll be tuned out and just you know go off on various tangents and he'll come away with not much of anything. I didn't know, of course, which Trump I was going to get or whether I'd get a little bit of both. Uh, so I, I arranged for that first interview. It took place uh, in Bedminster at his uh, golf club in New Jersey. I drove up and stayed at a hotel and wandered my way over. And being a, a former college golfer and a golf nut, I sort of strolled around the golf course because I got there early. And And then, of course, you can't miss all the portraits of him decking the walls in the bar and the grill room, et cetera. Uh, and then when I got the interview with him and sat down, he, he had played golf that day. He had his golf attire on. And he seemed a little disengaged at first, 
I mean, the first thing he said to me was, well, you used to work at the New York Times. I said, yes. He says, well, they wouldn't have you there anymore, would they? I didn't answer his question. And he, he often sought sort of affirmation of things that he was believing, like Mueller was a bad guy or Comey was a bad guy, don't you think? And since I don't opine about these things and it was a taped interview, I, I, I didn't go there. But um, eventually I got to ask, you know, questions I wanted to ask. And I think I, you know, accomplished most of what I set out to do. So any other thoughts about as you look back on this whole experience, either the writing of the piece or the reaction that has really surprised you? Well, I have to say that the reaction to the piece has been so far mostly predictable, but I, there's still things to come, so I won't make a, you know, a final judgment. In terms of the, the reporting of the piece, I was disappointed in my inability to get major news organizations like the Times and the Post and the, the networks to engage on subject matters that I gave them very detailed questions and not just questions, but background ahead of time. I gave them a, a huge lag time to digest it. The Times had some of my questions for more than a year. At the end of the day, they did what they did, which was to kind of put out a statement and somewhat address a couple of them, uh, but not address most of them. Uh -huh. Nobody, not even a spokesperson, would get on the phone with me and discuss anything in the piece, any of the questions I had. The Post, I had a little more cooperation. And I should add, obviously, I know a lot of people at the Times. I don't know as many people at the Post, but I, I know some people at the Post. So I was disappointed that people who know me, who worked with me, uh, who know my work, were not, didn't, didn't engage with me in a way that I would have done if I were in a similar situation. Thank you, Jeff. You can check out Jeff's piece on CGR.org or in the show notes. And continue to follow CJR, our newsletter, The Media Today, um, for ongoing coverage of all this. Thank you for listening. See you next week.